Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 14 today. As we continue to look at making Christ preeminent in our life, we're going to be looking at, last week we talked about making Christ preeminent over the old self and, allow, you know, taking that old self off and allowing Christ to be the one who shapes us and changes our life. And now, today we're going to be looking at the new self and how he's preeminent over the new self. Did I need to hit that button? Um, so as you're turning to Colossians 3, uh, verse 12, um, I'm going to share a couple of stories about um, some dear friends of mine. Their last name, is, their, their names are Ralph and Vicki Schaefer. Vicki has since, um, the last time I was with them, since passed away. But... Um, just a couple of stories as I remember back to a time when I, when they were in my life on a daily basis. Um, Ralph was, they had a relationship that was uh, very much like they love to irritate each other. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I always got a chuckle out of that as I would listen to them banter back and forth and things. But Ralph was, we were sitting around, it was, Vicky and um, another couple that, that they were real good friends with and I was sitting at the table and Ralph had gotten up while Vicky was talking and he was going to grind some coffee beans. And so as soon as she started to talk, he turned on the grinder and ran it for like 15 seconds and then he stopped and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Can you say that again? And so as she would start to say it again and he turned the grinder back on and he did that two or three times and, um, and I was laughing, the other couple was laughing, and Vicki was just getting irritated. Um, another story that I was thinking about with them this week, um, I lived in an apartment, they'd turned their garage into an apartment, and I lived in the apartment, rented from them, um, and I w one night I went to their back door, and their lights were on, and I could see them in their family room, and I knocked on the door and all of a sudden the lights went off and they wouldn't come to the door and I kept knocking and um, and I knew I'd seen them I think maybe I had like gotten up on my tippy toes just to kind of see what was going on um, but later on they they teased me because they were like they were like you just wouldn't get the message so <laughs> so so those are a couple stories that make me laugh as I think back. And since you don't know them, you hear those stories and you probably think, yeah, they must have been really nice people. But um, I'm going to talk about them a little bit later on in the sermon because they were people in my life who I think um, were examples, and this is, gonna, this is not going to make sense because of what I just told you, but they're examples of putting others first, of putting others um, above their own needs and their own desires. And I will get into that a little bit later and explain why they are people um, that do that, even though they had a little bit of an honorary side as well. Um, let's look at our text, because Paul is going to be talking about putting on the new self, and part of putting on the new self is this um, attitude of putting other people first. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 14. 
So Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for um, the instruction that we get from the Apostle Paul here. Um, help us, Lord, to help us to understand what, like how we do this, how, how we put off the old self and how we put on the new self and, and what that looks like. And um, let us be able to see areas of our life where we haven't done that yet and we still need to and, and surrender those things over to you. And Lord, we, we just pray that every day that we're walking a little closer to you, that every day we're making some progress and that your spirit is maturing us and growing us so that we're becoming more and more like you as people who are your image bearers in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, all right, so the first point we're going to look at is actually going to come out of verse 11, which was in our text last week. The first point is the new man is one of unity. Now, we need to understand that we're reading a letter, and, and so in a letter, one point flows into the next, into the next, and, and even though we have to divide it up for purposes of a sermon series because we can't take that much time to cover, we, we have a time limit, um, it's not that easily done. It's, it's not always easy to find the place that breaks because things flow, and so I, I don't want to lose the flow. Verse 11 could go with the text we talked about last week, and it could go with the text we've talked about today because it is kind of this, this um, transition verse. So we're going we're gonna to address that just briefly here, um, but I want to just say in verse 11, we talked about unity. Last week we talked about how, um, you know, in, in Jewish practice and in the mindset of the Jews at the time, there was this division among, among people. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, um, and there were other things in their culture, slaves versus free. And so there were, there were these distinctions. And, but we talked about last week how when you come to Christ, and especially when you come to the table, which we're going to celebrate today, when you come to the table, you, you are on equal ground because we're all sinners in need of the grace that Christ offered us on the cross. And so Paul says in verse 11, you know, there's no longer these distinctions and divisions because Christ is in all and Christ is all. Now, I was thinking about this this week and, and how this plays out in our lives because scripture should be something that speaks into our lives and shapes how we live. And we live in a culture and in a country that has been deeply divided along um, different kinds of lines for our entire history. I'm going to talk about the division along racial lines, but it could be the division along lines of 
men and women because for a long time women didn't have um, all the same rights that men did. But so, so there's, there's a lot of areas that we could talk about, but I want to talk about the racial divide because that is the one that seems to be most pressing in our world today um, that we're dealing with. When we were, so this, this goes back a long time. Um, when we were still colonies, English colonies, there was slave labor that was targeted, that targeted those people with black skin, usually from Africa. When a nation was formed, so that was when we were colonies before we were a separate nation, when the nation was formed and our founding documents were drafted and adopted, the nation was still divided on the issue of slavery. Some of the people who were founding members wanted to abolish slavery and others, um, it was, it was a, the way of life that made, it, made their life easy and made them wealthy. And so the, the people who the people who were founding and drafting those documents knew that in order to get it ratified, they couldn't isolate the, sla the states that were more, or the colonies that were more, um, well, by the time the Constitution came along, states that were more uh, uh, leaning towards slavery and using slave labor, they knew that if they isolated them, they wouldn't ratify it, so they chose to not do anything with it and leave it for a later generation to deal with. Um, we, we fought a war about this. And I know technically the war was fought over the issue of states' rights, but the very issue at the forefront of those the states having the right to s claim whatever they wanted and to live the way they wanted and make their own laws was the issue of slavery. Slavery and more deeply the heart attitude that believed that some people are of less value than others based on the color of their skin was tearing the country apart. Which means that after the war when slavery was abolished, our laws had changed. We'd passed new laws and, and made um, black people citizens. Um, so our laws had changed but many American hearts had not changed. And it would be another 100 years of racism. It would just come in a different form. It would come in the form of segregation. The value of black citizens was viewed by some to be of less value than those of white citizens. So we, over time, we passed some more laws that changed the way we lived legally. But again, the issue was deeper than the surface. It was an issue of the heart. So black citizens now, at that, by the time we've advanced in, in, you know, into the 20th century. Black citizens now had equal status according to the law, but we did not see a change of heart with many people. And we've made a lot of advances in terms of race relations, but laws, here's the problem, laws can't change your heart. Only Christ can change your heart. In our current time, we're witnessing a new surge of race-based emotions. Even though black Americans have found themselves excelling in positions of government, and business, and management, and professional sports, and education, and church leadership, and we could go down the line with all, all the areas that we see them advancing and having leadership positions, there's still a tension among the races that has deepened the divisions in our nation and in our culture. So when Paul stated that within the church there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all, 
he stated something that is at the heart of America's need for true healing. It's only in Christ that we will find the kind of healing and health that's needed to bridge that race divide in our country. We can pass all the laws that we want to, but it will never heal because our laws and our country and our culture and the world are all based on a fallen nature because sin has corrupted all of creation. And God actually warned us about this in Genesis chapter 3, a result of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. A result of the fall was that there would be tension, sorry, there would be tension and strife among mankind. And we can't fix that. The only place the healing can take place is in Christ. Christ came to redeem all of creation. Sin corrupted all of creation, and Christ redeemed all of creation. And he's going to one day return it to the state that it was intended to be. So apart from him, anything that is corrupted by sin is impossible to heal. It's impossible for us to heal the race divide in our country apart from an understanding of truth found in Christ that all people are created in God's image. We cannot possibly love the way God loves unconditionally, but we certainly will not be able to grow in unconditional love toward others unless we surrender our will over to the will of the one who is in his very essence love. And until we're made perfect, our love will never be unconditional and perfect the way God's love is, but that is the only shot we have at any kind of healing that's plagued our country and really the world for so many hundreds of years. That's why the message of the gospel is so vital. We've tried minding our own business and allowing each state to decide for themselves. We've considered sending black people as slaves, uh, as, sorry, black slaves. We've considered freeing them, sending them to um, colonize a place in Africa. That was, uh, that was one of the things, one of the ideas thrown out leading up to the Civil War. We've tried fighting over it. We've tried passing laws and amendments to the Constitution. We've tried abolishing slavery, but existing separately from each other. We've tried passing more laws that would give them equal opportunities. We've tried peacefully protesting, like Martin Luther King Jr. did. We've tried non-peaceful protests that ended up in riots and destruction and death. We've tried to deal with racism in the classroom and in the workplace and in the media and on the big screen and on the stage, but nothing's worked because we're using our fallen mind to come up with solutions in a fallen world. The human heart is what needs to change because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So you and I 
have the only message that has a shot at working in this fallen world, and that's the message of the gospel. And the reason why it's the only message that has any opportunity to bring real change is because it's not a solution that's surface level, like passing new laws or, or bringing about some kind of peace conference or, you know, those things are things that deal with the surface. Christ and the gospel deals with the heart. It's a solution that gets to the heart and transforms the heart. And the only one who can transform the human heart is Jesus Christ. So you and I have that only message that is able to work. It's vital that the church step up and share the gospel with those who are enslaved to darkness. Then they can experience the salvation of Christ in a unity unlike anything else in the history of the world. Because here, at this table, in the body of Christ, when we belong to him, our distinction means nothing because Christ is all and is in all. And so, yes, that was part of last week's text, but it leads into the change of becoming the new man, putting off the old man, being renewed in our mind by the Spirit, and putting on the new man. And so Paul then goes on in our point, point number two to talk about how the new man requires putting on love. This comes from verse 14. I will come back and cover some of the text before this, but I want to talk about this because of the emphasis that Paul puts on it. He starts in verse 12. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. So all these things that are godly things. Close, your, close, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. Um, forgive as the Lord forgave you. But then he says in verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love, because love binds them all together in perfect unity. So this is what it, this is what we put on when we put on the new self. And it looks a lot like the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. As the fruit of the Spirit of God... These are qualities that are born out of God's character. And as the people, as you and I, are image bearers of God, we are to allow the Holy Spirit to mature these qualities in us so that we are reflecting his glory. And so Paul says in verse 14, put on love. And when he, when he lists in Galatians, when he lists the fruit of the Spirit, he begins that list with love. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? He starts the list with love. In our text in Colossians, he ends the list by stating <coughs> that, excuse me, that love <coughs> holds all of them together in perfect unity. All these qualities that are godly qualities. Love is the thing that holds them all together. And he's not talking about warm, fuzzy love that you have for the girl that sits next to you in class or your spouse. He's talking about unconditional love, agape love, love that is not based on emotion, but more a decision of the will. And that holds them together. 
And Jesus, when we talk about love, and this is why Paul says that love is the thing that holds them together, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, he says there are, there are two commandments that are the greatest commandments. The first one, the most important commandment for you and I, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the most important thing in your life. But he says the second one is just like it. To love your neighbor as yourself or to love one another as ourselves. So when Paul says love holds these, all these things together, it's because Jesus has already stated that the most important commandment for you and I is that we have the kind of love that God has for God. And the second most important commandment that we have is that we have the kind of love God has for other people. <clears throat> and when we begin to think like God, we begin to understand God's heart of compassion. God's heart is one, like he's compelled to love, he's compelled to compassion. Um, I'm studying, I'm reading a book, um, I meant to bring it out so I could show it to you, but I've got copies in my office. There's a book that I'm reading and studying with a group of pastors called Gentle and Lowly. Um, it is it is the only it's the only place in scripture where Jesus talks about his heart his very heart is one of unconditional love so when we begin to think like God we begin to understand his compassion and what happens then is we begin to love uh, the way that God loves and God's very essence is love so that agape love, that unconditional love, is what defines God, and it defines his commandments, and it defines his interaction with humans in his creation. It really does govern all other things in this list of godly characteristics. Now, it's not easy. <coughs> it's not easy to love unconditionally the way that God loves, but the more we allow the Holy Spirit to shape and mold our thinking into a biblical mindset, the easier it becomes comes as the holy spirit matures us in this it will become more and more a natural part of who we are because he's making us more and more like god and it's a natural part of who god is so the new man requires putting on love but point number three he lists a number of things in here but this is something that goes hand in hand so I want to really focus in on humility. The new man requires putting on humility. And he says in verse 12, clothe yourselves with humility. Now I could go in and we could study all the things that he mentions, compassion, kindness, meekness, patience. We could study them all. But because humility and love are so, I think, inter interdependent, I want to focus in on this. There's actually, in classical Greek, there's actually no word for humility. So what the biblical writers used was Koine Greek. That was not classical Greek. Classical Greek, um, they had no word for humility. So what the biblical writers had to do as they were using Koine Greek, Koine means common, 
That was the common language that was spread all across the world at that time, kind of like English is today. But it wasn't classical Greek because, you know, people would introduce words from their own culture. They would, uh, sorry, they would have, um, you know, accents that might change the way some things were pronounced. So over time, languages kind of morphed. So Koine Greek was the common Greek that was spread across the, the world. And what the biblical writers had to do, because there was no word for humility in classical Greek, is they had to put into words this concept uh, the best that they could um, because there was no word in Greek's original form. Now, it's understandable that <coughs> an ancient language might not have a word for a concept that, they, that hasn't been introduced to the world yet. So like, for example, 100 years ago, there was no word in English, internet right because it hadn't been a thing it wasn't we don't just we don't just make up words for concepts that we don't have but the the concept of humility was not that was not a concept that was yet to be developed the concept of humility was understood in other cultures at the time one specific culture was the jewish culture because in the old testament the call to a life of humility before God was all over the, the, old te- the writing of the Old Testament. So why then would there be no word in classical Greek culture or language for a concept that was in other languages and other cultures of the time? Well, like I said, we don't create words for concepts that we don't know or use. You know, if there was no such thing as a dog, we would not come up with the word dog just to make up a word. We, we take words, we develop words from concepts. We, words grow out of things that we're experiencing and that are, that are real and immediate in our lives. Which tells me that the concept of humility had no place in ancient Greek culture. The Greeks, especially like the philosophers and the teachers of that day, they were only concerned about their greatness and their wisdom and their influence over the thinking of the citizens. Pride was actually considered a great virtue in ancient Greece. Aristotle called pride the crown of the virtues. So in that time, in that culture, humility had no place. You strived for what, that which made you better than the next guy, made you smarter, made you stronger, made you um, a better worker, a better whatever. But the life to which God calls us, a life that imitates him and reflects his glory as image bearers, is a life that is shaped by love and humility. Love for others moves us to do what is best for the other person. Humility is what prevents us from doing what is only best for ourselves. Love for others moves us to do what is best for the other person. Humility is what prevents us from doing what is only best for ourselves. So the two go hand in hand. You can't be prideful and truly love others unconditionally. The two don't work together. If you do not love others unconditionally, then 
The problem is we will be tempted to place our own needs and desires above theirs. And Paul tells the Philippian church in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. You can't make that any clearer. If we are not humble in heart, then we will be people who are condescending to others and we will treat them contemptuously. I mentioned the book Gentle and Lowly. It comes out of Matthew chapter 11. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four accounts of Jesus' life, of his earthly ministry. There are 89 chapters of scripture in those four books. There is one verse where Jesus tells us anything about his heart, and it's Matthew eleven twenty nine. <coughs> he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. It's the only thing that we have from Jesus about his own heart. <coughs> and it's not like all four gospel writers wrote that and rec recorded that. It's only in Matthew. So 89 chapters of scripture, one place, one verse, half of a sentence, where Jesus tells us anything personal about his heart, and he, says, he describes it as gentle and humble. Humility and love go so hand in hand. And if we are going to be like our Savior, that has to be what governs everything in our life. This is what is necessary if we're going to see uh, each other as valued people made in the image of God. Which takes us back into verse 11 and into some of the things we talked about early on in the sermon. No matter what the physical or the national or the social differences that there may be between us, this is necessary to see people as valued people who are made in the image of God. This is what the new self looks like. This is what it looks like to make Christ preeminent in your life. Now, just before Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart, He said this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So Jesus' instruction to his disciples was the only thing that he tells us is that his heart is gentle and lowly, gentle and humble. And he says, right before he states that, he says, learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. All right, so let's look at some application as we wrap up. How do you humble yourself and love others? Because that's not easy. It's not like you can just follow a formula and it happens. So how do you do it? Well, it takes making some willful decisions 
it takes asking God in prayer to change your heart. It takes being willing to accept what the Spirit is doing in your heart to change it. But there are some things that are like practical things as well, besides, I mean, prayer is practical, but besides that, there are some things that you can do that, that I think God will use to help develop this in you. And I'm not one who's, because salvation is not based on works, I'm not one who is keen on checking off lists. But I would say if like making a list of things that you think you could do will help you to start serving other people, I think God will then in those experiences begin to change your heart. And so as long as you don't understand, as long as you're not thinking, as long as I do this, I'm good with God. It's just more uh, something kind of like a to-do list that helps catapult you into service. But Maybe you check in on an elderly couple that lives near you, a neighbors, and see if they need anything. Or maybe you invest your life in someone as a mentor. Or maybe you invite someone to church or to hang out at the park or to go get coffee or anything like that. Maybe when you'd rather not do anything, you invite a person who lives alone to join you for dinner. Things like that where you put other people's needs first, God will use those things to develop in you a desire to serve and be humble. So let me get back to what I was talking about with Ralph and Vicki Schaefer. I was in my first ministry. I was a youth pastor. I wasn't married, so I lived alone. Um, I was fresh out of college. I had no money. Um, they had turned their garage into a studio apartment for something that they used it for earlier than that, but then no one was using it at the time. And so I come into town and they said, hey, he needs a place to live. They charged me $125 a month, and that included like utilities. They had cable run out there for me, like everything. So they, they were offering this to me, and I took it. Um, they still lived in the house, but they had only one of their four daughters still living at home. The rest were, were out of the house, married with kids. Their daughter that lived at home was a high school student, so she was frequently gone with friends. Um, so Ralph and Vicki were usually home alone. They had, a, they had a tradition every Tuesday evening, they had another couple they were best friends with and they would go out to eat every Tuesday evening. And so um, as I, had gotten there for the first few weeks I was there. Um, you know, I was still establishing my schedule and stuff, but after a few weeks, uh, they invited me to come along. And so here I am, this is their quality time with their best friends, and they've now welcomed me to come along. And, and I thought, this is fun, I'll, you know, this won't be an every week thing, but it was an every week thing. I was welcomed into this circle that was so intimate among them. So from that point on, this group of four best friends became five of us. And then Ralph and Vicki began to invite me in for dinner throughout the week. I think I ate more meals with them than I ate alone. 
when I'd be gone for a week at church camp or at a youth conference or something like that, Vicki would come in and clean my apartment and wash all my clothes. If I had any dishes that I didn't get to before I had to leave town, she'd do my dishes. And I'd come home to a clean apartment with everything ready to go. Um, and they didn't have to take me in like a son. I mean, it, w it would have been enough just the steal I was getting on the apartment. But they didn't look to their own desires or their own needs. But rather, out of humility, they considered my needs and my desires greater than their own. And they treated me like their own child. And they've become, um, and I said Vicki passed away, but they had become two of my best friends. They're like my parents' age, but they're, they were two of my best friends. One of the hardest things in my life was leaving them when we got married and moved to Florida. Um, Vicki put her head down on the table when I told her, and I thought she was gonna lift up her head and make a smart comment, but she lifted up her head and she was just bawling, tears rolling down her face, which made it even harder. So that's the, that is the picture that Paul's talking about when he says, you put on the new man and it's a, it's a one of love and humility. That's what it looks like to make Christ preeminent in your life. So my challenge to you this week is to ask God what you can do to put someone else's needs and desires above your own in an attempt to be humble in heart. That's what image bearers do because that is what God did. If we're going to bear his image, we need to live like him. That's what it looks like to make Christ preeminent over the new self. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, we have that example in Christ. We have that example in other people that uh, were your servants in Scripture. I'm thankful for the example that you've put in our lives. I'm sure every one of us has a story like someone with someone that's like Ralph and Vicki. That's what you've called us to do and be. To put on the new self, which is one of love and humility and bears your image and and produces through the Spirit's work in our life your fruit, your characteristics. It's much easier to talk about it and to read about it than it is to actually put it into practice. Um, so we pray for the grace necessary and for the work of the Spirit in our life necessary to be able to do this. For your glory and honor, in Jesus' name.